Now this is sad. When all the other judges, God focused on their life. And yet with Samson, God is going to end and focus big time on his death. It's a long, drawn-out story. And you think about even how many times she's like, Samson, Samson, Samson. The narrator just keeps drawing it out. Chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute. Now Gaza is right here in the middle of Philistine territory. So once again, he's hanging out in Philistine territory. But this time he's hooking up with a prostitute. So he's definitely not godly. He went in to have sex with her, and the Gazites were told that Samson has come here. So they surrounded the town, and they all hid at night at the city gate, waiting for him to leave. They relaxed, <clears throat> they relaxed all night, thinking, He will not leave until the morning comes. Then we will kill him. Samson spent half the night with the prostitute, and then he got up in the middle of the night, and he left. He grabbed the doors of the city gate, and as well as all the two, the two posts, pulled them right off the bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the hill east of Hebron. So he's sleeping with a prostitute, and once again, being attracted to the wrong woman, notice that this is all about lust. Lust in his vengeance, lust in his anger, lust in his desires, for, and lust in for women. This is all bring him down. So they think, oh, he'll be the whole night there, and then he'll get up and leave. So he sneaks out in the middle of the night. He grabs the city gates. Now, the city gates are huge. They're at least big enough for a camel to get through. And then they are wood on iron. And it says he rips it right out of the post, and he carries this thing on his back for about 13 miles. And he sticks these gates on the top of Hebron, in the middle of nowhere, like Stonehenge, just sitting up there totally vacant. Why is he doing this? The city gates are the symbol of two things in a city your authority and your strength. Because in this peacetime, inside the city gates is where all your judges sat and they ruled the court cases. That's your authority. And then during wartime, it's the weakest point in your city, so it's basically your most ultimate strength. That's the strongest as you'll be, is your city gates. So good city gates, gates means strong city. Bad one means weak city. City gates represent strength and authority. This is why Jesus said, not even the gates of hell will prevail against you. And you're like, why would gates be attacking me? Well, that's what he's saying. Not all the authority as a judge or king of hell, and not all the strength of hell will prevail against you. So he takes that, and he carries it away. He's humiliating them. He's taking their authority and their strength, and removed it from them and put it in the middle of the nowhere. This is the equivalent of de-pantsing a city in public. He's just trying to humiliate them and embarrass them. This is pride. Did this really accomplish anything? No. Humiliating people and de-pantsing people is just all about your pride. All about showing other people up for your own, for their, at their expense. And that's what he's saying. The narrator is saying, okay, so let's summarize Samson up before we talk about his death. He's a childish, prideful person who just humiliates other people for his own purposes. And there's really nothing about here about him serving God. And all by the way, he can't just stop sleeping with these Philistine women. After this, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah, who lived in Sorek Valley. The rulers of the Philistines went up to visit her and said to her, Trick him. 
Find out what makes him so strong and how he can subdue him and humiliate him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 silver pieces. It says that he fell in love with Delilah. It never says that she fell in love with him. In fact, when the Philistine rulers come and pay her, she accepts it. That's not love. Chances are this is a fling. And knowing what the Philistines are like, this could be just strictly, it's strictly sexual for both of them. Chances are he's not really falling in love with her. He's confused love and lust. Nothing. So that like Elizabeth Taylor, Samson movie, where there's this beautiful romance between Delilah and Samson and all that kind of stuff, that's all bunk. It's completely made up. This doesn't follow the biblical story in any kind of way. He fell in love with her, which means he's now blinded. He's blinded. They pay him. Now, there it says the Philistine rulers, there's at least five major cities here. Each one is offering 1,100 pieces of silver shekels. 1,100 is like winning the lottery. And they're going to win it for her five times over at least. Even if there's only two rulers, that's still winning the lottery. I mean, this is retirement. You're good for life. So this, isn't, this shows you how badly they want him dead. But it also shows you what she is getting for this. So this is not about love. This is not about romance. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me what makes it. Now notice this is a repeat from the wedding all over again. Like, we'll give you this if you nag, trick your husband and giving him the answer. She goes, nags him, all that kind of stuff. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me what makes you strong and how you can be subdued and humiliated. First red flag. How can I humiliate you? Samson said to her, if they tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings, they have not dried, I will become weak, just like any other man. Now this could be bowstrings or just leather straps. But the idea is leather straps, when you cut leather or skin, animal skin, you get it wet. And it's very elastic, kind of like, and strong. Why won't he tell her? Why in the world does he think that his strength is a secret? Has there ever been a time that God says, when people ask you why you're able to do the amazing things, keep me a secret, don't tell anybody? No. He finally has the opportunity to be a blessing to the world and share who Yahweh is. Every single time Yahweh does something, they praise him. They announce it. Rahab says, we have heard all the great things that your God has done. We want to be a part of it. The Gideonites... I mean, um, the Gibeonites, I've heard it, that kind of stuff. But Samson is finally given an opportunity to give all glory and all praise and all credit to God, which he knows is from God because he already told you that. He already told you, you've given me this victory. So this one we know he's not oblivious. He finally has a chance, and for some reason he thinks it's a secret that he can't tell anybody. That's paganism. If you look at the Greek mythologies and all that kind of stuff, the secret of people's strengths are usually found in talismans. And they're found in items. And you try to keep it secret. Harry Potter, it's all about secretness. Mystery religion, it's all about secretness. He is thinking like a pagan. He doesn't see this as an opportunity to give glory to God. He sees it as a threat to him keeping his magical powers. 
This is one hint of many that are yet to come where he sees it more as a magical power than he does as a true gift from God or God enabling him. And we'll, we'll point that out as we get a little bit deeper. She ties him up and he falls asleep and she yells, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he gets up and snaps him free. Delilah said to Samson, Look, you deceived me, and you told me lies. Now tell me how you can be subdued. He said to her, If you tie me up tightly with brand new ropes that have never been used, I will become weak, just like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him up with him, and said to him, The Philistines are here. Samson, the Philistines were hiding in the bedroom. But he tore the ropes from his arms and he, like a piece of thread. So the second time this happens. Now notice it says the Philistines are hiding in the room. Remember that in the ancient world, people's houses were way smaller than this room that we're sitting in right now. Most people's houses were the size of probably two of your bedrooms put together. And they're hiding in the house. And he doesn't know it. It doesn't say it specifically, but if you don't know that people are hiding in your bedroom with you, and you're being tied up by ropes and leather straps, and you're falling asleep, chances are there's alcohol involved. I really can't think of any other... I mean, it's not like he's a hard worker. (laughs) Now, Delilah said to Samson, Up to now, you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you can be subdued. He said to her, If you weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric of a loom and secure it with the pen, I will become weak like any other man. Now, this is creative. Remember a loom? A loom is those that frame that you have thread or yarn or fabric or wool going horizontally across or and then or vertic- horizontally and then you weave other thread over under over under vertically and when you get enough threads you take a big comb and you put it into the threads horizontally and you push it horizontally over and it tightens all the vertical threads and you put a pin in it so the tension doesn't get released and you keep doing this so he says Take my seven braids. Now here we see that he actually has seven braids. Probably has seven because that's a number of completion. It's considered sacred in the ancient world. He's probably braiding it because it's so long, he's got to keep it off off the ground. And so he's braiding it to reduce the length of it. So he says, weave my hair, my braids, over, under, over, under, into a loom, and pin it, and I'll lose my strength. And then he falls asleep. I've never had long hair, but from just brushing my girl's hair, I can only imagine how painful that would be to have your hair pinned into something and fall asleep. This is what makes me think there's got to be alcohol involved. Why in the world does he keep doing this? Why in the world has he not like become aware of what's happening? Constantly being threatened. You're going to be killed. You're going to be killed. Let's tie you up. Let's tie you up. He's there for a sexual relationship, and this isn't turning into that. Or, and I don't mean to be crass, but one commentator has suggested that this might be a kind of a kinky bondage thing to him. And it kind of makes sense. He is either so blinded by lust and so oblivious he doesn't get what's going on. I've met some pretty dumb, sexually driven, blinded college guys before, and they're not even this dumb. Now, why is this in here? Three times, over and over and over again. It may be the narrator's way of saying, this is the kind of man he is. This is the kind of man he is. 
He's taken God's sacred gift of becoming one flesh, and it's become a game to him. It's become about his strength. And he's doing it with a woman that there's no real connection with there. This kind of summarizes up the entire character of Samson. This is the kind of man he is. She begins to whine even more and say, if you really love me, and he finally tells her this. Verse 17, finally he told her the secret. He said to her, my hair has never been cut, for I have been dedicated to God from the time that I was conceived. Notice no use of Yahweh. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me. I would become weak and be just like any other men. Now, is that true? No. Did Othniel have long hair to be strong? Did Jephthah have long hair to defeat the enemy? Did Joshua have long hair? He says, I've been dedicated to God, but it's my hair that gives me strength. This is what tells you that he believes that it's a magical talisman. If you read Greek mythology, Jason and the Agronauts has a golden fleece to defeat the enemy. Perseus needs a head of Medusa to defeat the Kraken. He's also given a magical sword and a magical pegasus. Over and over and over again, stories in Greek mythology and pagan mythologies are filled with people having to overcome Hercules, overcome incredible tasks to grab magical talismen from the gods in order to feed an enemy. Now, who gave them the talisman? The gods. But is it really truly the power of the gods giving them strength? It's the talisman. And so what Samson's saying here is, God gave me my hair because I'm dedicated to him, but it's my hair that gives me strength. He doesn't know his purpose. He doesn't really know the source of strength. You kind of thought that maybe he did when he said, you gave me victory, but you realize that he kind of does, but it's also mixed with a paganism magicalness. Even in Harry Potter, they have to get the magic wand. They have to get the hall crux. They have to get the philosopher's stone. They, they have to get the, the cape of invisibility. It's always these things, these objects that they have to give to defeat things. And they know that something in the spiritual realm created it, but it's not really a spiritual thing. It's this thing. And that's what he says. That's what he thinks his power comes from. This means he's completely disconnected from God. He is incapable of giving God glory because he doesn't even know how God is really using him and equipping him. Here that he says on the Nazarene. So doesn't that give some credence to Shiva? Because understand. Yeah. But like I said, it could be... Think of the, um, the Catholic Mass. I mean, do they get a lot of things right in the Catholic Mass? Yeah, crucifixion of Christ, forgiveness of sins. But they really they mix it with the paganism of I have to re-crucify Christ again since the last time I committed sins. Do they get Mary as the mother of God right? Yes, except they think that Mary is nicer. And you pray to her more than you do God. So it's probably that. It's a mixture of he's got this understanding of Yahweh and how Yahweh works, but it's been mixed with grassroots paganism. West Virginia snake handlers. They've got a lot of things right, but they've mixed it with a grassroots paganism. That doesn't mean they're not Christians. And I'm not saying that all the Catholics are not Christians, but they have mixed true Christianity, good theology, with grassroots superstition, 
how, um, wives' tales kind of stuff. And so he's probably got some kind of mixture. And I don't know where one begins and the other one leaves up, but the point is that it's, it's not pure. It's not pure. When Delilah saw that he had told her his secret, she sent for the rulers of the Philistines, saying, Come up here again, for he has told me the secret. So the rulers of the Philistines went up to visit her, bringing the silver in hand. She made him go to sleep on her lap, and then called a man to shave off his seven braids. I think I would wake up for that one too. She made him vulnerable, and his strength left him. She said, The Philistines are here, Samson. He woke up, thought, I will do as I did before, and shake myself free. But he did not realize that Yahweh had left him. I think that's one of the saddest statements in the entire Bible. He is so oblivious to who Yahweh is, he has no idea who God, that God has left him. Do you know how bad that your marriage has to be that your wife or your husband walks out on you and you don't realize they've left? Now I get that it's a little bit different with God because he's <laughs> invisible, and, but at the same time, like he has no idea that God left him on a moral reason, in a physical presence kind of a way. Now, why in the world did his strength leave him when his hair was cut? That makes it sound like he's right, that his hair is a source of his magical power. Why didn't God leave him when he touched the dead carcass, when he ate from the fermented thing? Why is it that God stayed with him all that, but the cutting of the hair was the last straw? What is significant? What is different about the hair compared to every other requirement of the Nazarite? It was a sign. It's not that the strength left because his hair had been cut and the magicalness had left him. It's that he lost the sign. It's like this. My wife and I hurt each other all the time because we're human, we're stupid, we're sinners. Everybody hurts each other all the time. But we forgive each other and love covers a multitude of sins because deep down inside I know she's not a mean-spirited woman who's just out to get me and destroy me. She's just a sinner who's selfish and does things that hurts me and I do the same thing and I know that I got my issues and she's got her issues and so we're able to bear with each other and we're able to have love covers a multitude of sins and we're able to deal with it and forgive each other and move on. But... If I walked into the room one day and took my wedding ring off and threw it on the floor, would that communicate something drastically different than anything else I've ever done to her? Yes. It's one thing for him to constantly violate the relational covenant, and God still sticks it out with him. It's another thing to treat the sign of the covenant in this kind of way, to treat it as frivolous, to treat it as magical, to treat it as special. If you treat the... the the magicalness and the secretness of me living forever is holding on to the cross. The cross is what gives me eternal life. And then throwing that away. That's why God leaves him here. One of it is probably there's nothing else to break. He's broken everything. But I think it really has to do with the way he's treating the sign. And the sign has been removed and it becomes an outward symbol of what had always been there in his heart a total disconnection from Yahweh. I think so because the narrator specifically says that she, when she saw that he had told the truth and the fact that the hair is removed is what changes everything drastically. That this is, 
You have to understand this three-panel story is not just the billy goats gruff and three little pigs. Like, this goes back in the ancient world. God often does three-panels thing where the fourth one is drastically different. So I think that kind of a structure suggests they really believed it. And the fact that it'll later say that his hair began to grow back. She made him vulnerable, but he did not realize God had left him. The Philistines captured him, gouged out his eyes. Now that's basically heating up a red poker in the fire and just melting it out. It's not like grabbing and gouging or knifing it or something like that because you have to cauterize it so it doesn't bleed. So it usually means melting the eyeballs. Now why do I tell you for all those who are queasy? Because I want you to understand what they're doing to him. This is horrific. They shaved his head, which is probably not like a $100 Cameron Mitchell haircut shaving. It's probably just chaotic, brutal, nappy looking. They've gouged out his eyes by melting the light, um, or the $500 um, Clinton haircut with your tax dollars. So <laughs> They gouged his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze chains, and he became a grinder in the prison. So he is blind, grinding grain. Now you have to understand the irony here. He started off by burning down the grain fields. Now he's grinding the grain of the, the Philistines. He has mistreated and humiliated and treated women as physical lust objects his entire life. Now he's doing women's work. And he's blinded. He's been cocky and prideful, and now he's blinded. His physical blindness is now reflecting his spiritual blindness. This guy has been humiliated, brought down, and shamed in the worst way he can. He has become the joker. And then it, but it says, but his hair began to grow back. It had been shaved off. Now, what you are not to think is, that means his magicalness is coming back. Like it's Fabio's hair mixed with herbal essence. Like it's just you can't get any better than that. It's not what you're supposed to think because nowhere when he finally does that final act does it point to the hair. What allows him to do the final act is his prayer to God. So the narrator's not telling you the magicalness is coming back because the hair's growing back. The hair is this, the sign of the covenant. It's like my wife walking up to me and lovingly taking my wedding ring and putting it back onto my finger and saying, despite what you've just done, I still love you and I'll still be with you. That's the significance of God allowing the hair to grow back. That's what God wants you to see, is despite all this, the cockiness, the, are you going to let me die? Give me your strength. I'm going to name these springs after myself. The power is not God. It's in my hair. All of this and God walks up in the darkness of his humility. I mean, you've got to think, there's a lot of time to reflect on your life. You're in a cave, or in a dungeon, or with some wine press, grinding grain, blinded and humiliated with no life. And you're probably going to do a lot of thinking. In the stillness, and the darkness, and the loneliness, God walks up to him and puts the sign of the covenant back on his body. And that is the real hero. Remember, this is not about how great these men and women are. The real hero in all these stories is Yahweh, and then later his son, Jesus. And the point is that God walks in there and cups him 
and his arms to speak. And we're going to see that Elijah, Elijah's going to be like, I quit, I'm done with you. And God sends an angel and comforts him and feeds him and takes care of him. This is God. God is not only all-powerful who can dominate and clobber people and ten plagues and the, the flooding of the Kishon to wipe out, wipe out Sisera's army and Jael with the tent peg and Ehud with the sword and Jephthah with the feeding the armies and Gideon. He's not just that God. He's also the God of love and compassion and comfort and gentleness. He's the God who says to Israel, Oh, Israel, how I long to gather you together in my wings like a mother bird gathers of chicks. And you need to see something that in these stories you see both sides of God. The compassionate mother as well as the powerful father. Warrior and friend. And that's what God is demonstrating here. Does this make sense? Any questions, comments? Verse 23, The rulers of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate. They said, Our god has handed Samson, our enemy, over to us. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has handed our enemy over to us, and one who has ruined our land and killed so many of us. So the tables are flipped, where before he burned down the fields of Dagon, now he is in the temple of Dagon and they are celebrating the great hero of God being destroyed. Now remember, this reflects on Yahweh. Your image that you present reflects on Yahweh for good or bad because you are his testimony, you are his witness. And this is reflected. So they're praising Dagon as greater than Yahweh because of Samson's actions. So they celebrate him. When they really started celebrating, they said, Call for Samson so he can entertain us. So they summoned Samson from prison, and they made him stand between the two pillars. Now this temple is huge. We're told that there's going to be several thousand just on the roof alone, let alone what's in it. And they bring him out to entertain them. Now remember, he's the joker. We talked about this at the very beginning with Adonai Bezik. And he is the joker. He is the great warrior, the great knight, the great hero that has been humiliated. His eyes have been gouged out. And he looks like a punk, basically, now, the way they've treated him. And they're not talking about bringing him out because he's got a really great, like, comedy routine and juggling act. They mean, here's the blind guy. Let's kick him, trip him, spit on him, and laugh hysterically because... It says that they're in high spirits, which is a way of saying they're totally drunk. And everything is funny when you're drunk, especially total immaturity. So this is what they're doing. Now the temple was filled with men and women, and all the rulers of the Philistines were there. That's key. All the rulers of the Philistines are there. God knows what he's doing. There were 3,000 men and women on the roof watching Samson entertain. And Samson called to Yahweh, O Master Yahweh, remember me, strengthen me just one more time, O God, so I can get swift revenge against the Philistines for my two eyes. So Samson prays. This is the second time he's actually prayed out or cried out to God ever in his life that's been recorded in the scriptures. What is different about this prayer compared to the last one at the spring of En-Hakor? Yo, he's mentioning Yahweh. What else? Okay, now he knows his strength is coming from God. And he kind of acknowledged that God gave him the victory last time. 
But in the end, naming the spring after yourself kind of is like, okay, but did he really? But now he actually is acknowledging that his strength comes from Yahweh and not his hair. And it's not immediately like followed up with a backhanded slap that Yahweh is saying, oh, by the way, but I really think it's about me. So there's a humility here. He is not, and last time he didn't, he demanded that God give him water. This time he's requesting. And so there seems to be a lot more humility here. He's, he's acknowledging Yahweh in a much greater sense of humility rather than demanding and pride. There's a request here rather than demanding. But there's still something wrong with his prayer. Yeah, well, he, he, it's all about him and his eyes. Exactly. He's still saying, but I want vengeance for my eyes. Yeah. Not for the glory of Yahweh, not for the deliverance of Israel, but for his eyes. And you're like, oh, Samson, you were like so close. If you would just close <laughs> your mouth in this, that last part and just stopped while you're ahead. However, yeah, this prayer is not completely biblically accurate or selfless. But this is a huge step for Samson. This is a, he's come a long way. And this is why the author of Hebrews can say, by faith, Samson. Because there is faith here. And if you really think about your prayer life too, there's probably a lot of things that we've prayed over the years that have been very selfish. And even when you get to the Psalms, yeah, the Psalms, if you like, we, we read and sing the friendly ones. <laughs> but if you read some of the Psalms in the Bible, there's places where David's like, please, God, kill them all, bury them alive, and let them never come back. And so you're like, what? You can't pray that to God. But he is, and it's in the Bible. And there's a reason why it's in the Bible, even though it's a psalm, praising God or lamenting or whatever. He's come a long way. It's still not completely altruistic, but is any of us really that when we're praying, if we're going to be really honest? Yet at least he's acknowledging Yahweh as a source of power. And so this is where he begins to demonstrate a little bit of faith, because even though it's for his own purposes, he still believes that it's God who's going to give him that strength to do something mighty. So he asked for the ability to kill them all. Verse 29, Samson took a hold of the two middle pillars that supported the temple and he leaned against them with his right hand on one and the left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed hard and the temple collapsed on the rulers and all the people in it. He killed many more people in his death than he had killed during his life. I told you, I think one of the saddest statements in the entire Bible is, Samson did not know that Yahweh had left him. How sad that is that he's completely oblivious to God not being there. But unfortunately, Samson, I think, also gets the second set of statement in the entire Bible. And that's the phrase, he killed more people in his death than in his life. Basically, what it's saying is that he accomplished the purpose of God more when he was dying than his entire life. That's sad. That's sad to go your entire life and you never really accomplish your purpose. You never really amounted to anything until the moment you die. Now, at least he has that and God was able to use him in that, but that most of his purpose being accomplished was in his death. That's sad. That's very sad and very heartbreaking. And so God did. God used him. 
Once again, even those modes are not completely pure, God uses them. And this, this is the message of the Bible. God is constantly using us and redeeming us and using us in his kingdom, even though we're not completely selfless or doing it for the right reasons all the time. Yes, there's good reasons in there, but you, you, know, you know when your sin nature is always there. When you get like involved in some kind of ministry or a homeless ministry or wrapping presents for kids on Christmas or something like that or anything, and you do something. And nobody in the church acknowledges you. And they, or that what worse, they pouring up everybody on stage who was a part of it and they forgot to mention you. <laughs> and when you're thinking, wait a minute, I was there. I can't believe that's how you know you're still a sinner. And that you didn't <laughs> completely do it for 100% the right reasons. That even though you were doing it for the right reasons, even though you were doing it for the glory of God, and, 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 and that will be more and more as the Holy Spirit works in you and sanctifies you, there's still a part of you who still selfishly wants to be acknowledged. It's about you. You get angry if you get noticed. Don't get noticed. Or when you hold the door open for somebody and they like don't appreciate it, you're like, well, I'm not going to do that for people anymore. That means you weren't doing it for the right reasons. We need to acknowledge that in ourselves. Like even when you are really truly can say, I'm doing this for the right reasons, and I'm doing this for God, and I'm doing this because I love other people, you have to acknowledge there's still a part of you who's doing it for your own glory, your own pride, or even your own, this makes me feel good. Even if you don't care about acknowledgement, you still like, if it doesn't make you feel good, then you tend to think, I don't know if I want to do this ministry anymore. And we have to realize that that's selfishness. So we need to relate to Samson this one. It's easy to point the finger and say, dude, that prayer's jacked up. But that's us. That's us. Not, I'm not saying every prayer, but there are moments. There are moments where that is us. And God still uses them. He is flawed. He is imperfect. He has a horrible reputation and track record. And yet God still uses them. In a very powerful way. And you're like, yeah, but he did use him to kill a bunch of people. But remember, right now, this is the will of God. The will of God is to cleanse Canaan with, from the Canaanites and the Philistines. And that's no different than God using you as a witness in other people's lives, even though you're not completely on target in your own life. Because it doesn't matter whether God's will is to eliminate the Canaanites or to share the gospel with people. It's still God's will. And it's still holy. And still his kingdom. And he's using us despite that. Verse 31. His brothers and all of his family went down and brought him back. And they buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel for 20 years. At this point, you're like, wait a minute. He had brothers? Where are they in this story? They weren't important for the purpose. So notice it said he led Israel for 20 years. And you're like, wait a minute. I don't remember a whole lot of leading Israel in this story. But remember, it doesn't mention anything about him bringing peace. Peace. There's no mention of that. We get to this last judge, and we find out that God is not lifting up judges to deliver them in the purest sense of the judge. They are no longer crying out to God for help. The leader is wholly self-absorbed oblivious 
to even helping Israel in any kind of way. Yes, Jephthah helped Israel for the totally wrong reasons, but he still helped them. He still led them. Samson has no leadership skills whatsoever. He's told himself. Judah does not acknowledge him as a leader in any kind of way or appreciate him in any kind of way. He's oblivious to helping them or delivering them or doing God's glory. In the end, the main focus of the story is on his death. And he brings no peace to the land. He brings no rest to the land. And this is how the judges end. And it's sad. It's absolutely sad and depressing that Israel has ended up at this point. Most scholars believe that the time that Samson is dying is the time that Samuel is serving as a boy in the tabernacle. And so those first several chapters of Samuel are overlapping with this last life of Samson. And so Samuel and Samson may be contemporaries of each other on the opposite ends of their lives here. So that shows you that we're coming very close to the book of Samuel and that when Samuel launches in and Saul and David, this is the culture of Israel. This is the culture of Israel. So Samson is an example of a leader who basically is just trying to fulfill his own purposes, only thinks about his own pleasure, and is not really interested in leading the people. And I think we can relate to that one. There's so many leaders in America and in political power now that I really feel like is really about their own glory, their own profit, and they're not really truly serving the American people. And this is the result of that. 